Hello and welcome to the first episode of season two of Q and A Quests. Wait, are we splitting these into seasons? When did this happen? No, not really. It's episode twenty-one of Q and A Quest. <laughs> Happy New Year! <laughs> I mean, we could have done that. You can't stop us. Yeah, no. We are in charge of the numbering. Yeah, but apparently we decided to go with twenty-one anyway. Yeah. Well, you know that kind of works as season two, episode one. When you really think about it. Uh, uh, (laughs) We're going to do more than 10 episodes this uh, year, so... Also, also then that would make episode 20, like, kind of a zero episode, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it kind of makes sense, given what we did with it. (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, Coming close on our first anniversary, actually. That's true. About a month from now, as of this recording. We're going to have to do something special for that. But go ahead. Alright. I'm your host, uh, Solid Snake, and this is my co-host... Uh, Venom Punished Snake? Wait, no. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been playing too much Metal Gear. I'm your host, Mike Apps, a.k.a. Wheels, and this is my co-host... Venom Punished Snake? Oh, okay. Wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm David McKenna. And... This will be a relatively short episode because I'm still getting over some sort of nasty cold. Some sort of unique nastiness that hopefully cannot be transmitted over a Skype call. I assume not, but you never know. Technology is weird. <laughs> I was reading a story about someone like contra- contracting like a like Wiccan witch to cure their computer of viruses. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Unique world we live in. Strange, strange I hope, world. I hope, I hope some of our listeners are playing Legend of Heroes Trails of Cold Steel. Hopefully, I sure am, because that's a fun, fun game, even though I'm stuck at a boss. It's a, it's a Falcom game. It occasionally bears its fangs on you. Yeah. So, I, it's just... I don't think I ever ran into that kind of trouble with the Trails in the Sky, so... This one has I know some people that did. It's bound to Yeah. Anyway, uh, while we're on the subject of Strange, um, yeah, I've been playing some Metal Gear Solid Five, and that's a fun game. Uh, and I've been, like, rehabilitating this guy's opinion of Metal Gear for the past, like, three years. This is the culmination it's, of a lot of work. It's true. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not the only one that, you know, played Metal Gear Solid Two and maybe even enjoyed it. But then afterward was, like... I'm out. <laughs> I, I didn't really like that. I'm kind of done. So you're you're not by virtue of the fact that uh, Metal Gear Solid Three sales numbers are approximately half of Metal Gear Solid Two's. <laughs> At least of the initial PS2 release, like it was a sharp downturn. It's one of those things where like the the best selling installments tend to be the ones that come right after the ones that get a lot of good word of mouth and critical acclaim. Yeah. It's like, oh, everyone's talking about how awesome Metal Gear Solid was. Let me go you pick should, up this new one. Oh, man, everyone's talking about how this is trash, and I also <laughs> just played it. <laughs> what kind of weird fever dream is this freaking game? I have grown to appreciate what Metal Gear Solid 2 is attempting, even if I don't think it succeeds. <laughs> 
I mean, I'm not going to say there, there weren't solid stretches of that game that I enjoyed. It's just overall... <laughs> uh, solid <don't> stretches. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, I don't even think it was those particular stretches. I think I'm referring to uh, when you play as the other dude. No, no. Well, like, the, the irony is that, you know... Like and Metal Gear Solid Two is a, we we cannot go on with this uh, statement, or I will be talking about Metal Gear Solid's plot for three hours. No, well, I wanted to talk to you about it a little bit because I just thought it was funny that I was playing the opening to Metal Gear Solid Five, and as things got stranger and stranger, and I'm like, "What is going on? What is going on?" You're just like, "No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine." How fine. was how was any of that fine? How was a flaming unicorn fine? It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you started MG- you played MGS one and you were fine with a guy who could like turn off your ga- your TV. This is true. And now so like you're you are too far in to say no, good sir, this is too far. <laughs> yeah, this is kinda of what I've always enjoyed about the games in the series I have enjoyed is it it's not an, afraid to embrace the fact that it's a freaking video game. And I, I love that about the series. Metal Gear is interesting because Metal Gear is self-aware that it's a video game, but Kojima and, in my opinion, Goichi Suda both have this interesting idea where, like, a lot of times when something acknowledges it's a work of fiction, it uses that as an excuse to never think of itself as something that should ever be, like, spoken of seriously. But... Both, like, Kojima and Goichi Suda, who are also two of the weirdest people working in video games, and to an extent also Swery65, another of the weirdest people working in video games, mm. they all sort of, like, acknowledge that, game, that they're games, and oftentimes have mind-bendingly silly things happening, but they don't let that whiplash them out of ever being serious. Right. And, you know, that's obviously evident with these games, because they're quite serious a lot of the times but they also like understand that at some point they have to stop being serious and they can just acknowledge that oh that's dumb yeah you know yeah. like have you rescued uh, any of the wandering mother base soldiers yet no they act like escape monkeys <laughs> and there's a few different ways you can convince them to like come towards you do you, do you want me to spoil any of these uh probably not Okay, if you, if you need help, then ask, because there's a lot of different ways you can calm them down and just have them walk towards you. Okay. But yeah, like, that's that's the other thing, is that MGS5 is absolutely laden with Metal Gear's traditional attention to detail, where something, where you'll do something, and it doesn't seem like the game, like, the sort of thing a game would normally acknowledge, and then it will. <laughs> All right, so so how how exactly do you calm them down? Just let me know. Uh, you've got a few options. If you just sit there in a box, <laughs> they will walk up to it and realize that no human being other than Big Boss would come up to them, w- would actually be wandering around in a box in the middle of the desert. And they'll just walk up to you, sort of puzzle for a second, and then just stand there saluting you. <laughs> All right, that is that is amazing. And the other thing you can do is you can find a tape of Poss from Peace Walker humming, 
and like she'll be like any there's like a couple of I think there might be two tapes of her humming or like singing or something. If you play those, you can get a, an attachment for your iDroid that plays in such a way that enemies can hear whatever you're playing. <laughs> <laughs> and if you put that out there, they'll calm down and sort of lie down for a half. <laughs> All right, that's pretty cool. There's actually a few different uses you can make of that. If you you can find a uh, tape of someone having diarrhea. And if you play that while standing inside of a uh, uh, inside of an outhouse, enemies will not check it, even if they're in an alert. <laughs> oh, that's That'll great! Yeah, that's great. Let's not go too far down this. Yeah, the the one thought I wanted to leave on was just the fact that um, going back to. You know, how it embraces the fact that it's a video game that means you get all these cool bosses and you know thinking about similar stealth games like just like Splinter Cell I think it that series lacks a lot just because it's too it's realistic. It's too serious to yeah. have bosses. Exactly. But and like... I, I, I think that's something to consider you know when you think about oh you know you want game People, so many people want like realistic military shooters and whatnot, and just doesn't necessarily make the fun the best and most entertaining games. But this is probably the wrong audience to make that point because. Well, I would point <laughs> out that to, to justify the wankery we have just engaged in, that, yes. uh, that Metal Gear Solid Five has a remarkably similar gameplay loop to an RPG because even though you're not uh, leveling up Snake, you spend a lot of time planning out the skill tree that your gear essentially represents. Sure, I think in a lot of ways you could make the argument that it is an RPG, but, you know, a lot of games are so kind of It's, it's about as RPG as Monster Hunter. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of games are so mix-matched in different genres these days. Yeah, that, I just I just wanted yeah. to, to butt-cover this by putting some <laughs> sort of RPG spin on it. Sure, sure. Alright, well, let's, let's go into some of our uh, listener questions, and this is kind of a long comment about uh, our last episode. Yeah, so well, th- so. this is from. Am I looking at the right one here? Uh, is this the one from Victor? Yeah, this is the one from Victor, and he said, "If Destiny gets 2015 awards because it had new content that shouldn't World of Warcraft or other MMOs, I suppose be credited for their new content." Uh, Destiny's not an MMO, dude. Uh, it uses, but, uh, but just, let's, uh, let's... Let me just finish reading the whole thing, okay. and we'll go back to that. Um, WoW in particular got the Blackrock Foundry raid unlocked early in 2015 in patch 6.2 with Tannen Jungle Zone and the Hellfire Citadel raid added in the summer of 2015. Then again, I think WoW's award for 2015 is most subscribers lost in a year since, despite the introduction of the WoW token, the subscription numbers plummeted so low that Blizzard has stated they won't release the numbers to the public anymore in the future. Um, By the way, show made me want to play the visual novels that have been sitting in my backlog for over a decade. I laughed so hard when I heard we're not doing this now. (laughs) We're not doing this now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm glad someone uh, enjoyed me attempting to keep this from going further off the rails. Uh, Alright, so there's a few things to cover here. Unpack in here. Yeah, so, yeah, De- Destiny often gets called an MMO, and I understand that because it uses similar concepts. 
It's uh, an MORPG. Yeah. It's it's not quite the same though. And it's closer to PSO in structure as far as I've ever been able to tell. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good comparison. Because you're never playing with more than uh six people cooperatively or twelve people competitively, so yeah, uh, yeah, there's no real massive there. Uh, but before but, we, but moving to his actual point. sure. <laughs> before, before we get into anything about WoW, um, obviously I've talked about this before, though not really on this particular episode. That there's a lot more in the Taken King than just more content. You know, more content was one specific issue that Destiny had. Not that there wasn't plenty to do after the first two expansions, just that. Um, not enough for it to be kind of like your weekly, you know, all-encompassing, you know, online shooter game. The only thing that you ever play is yeah. okay, what it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, I mean, I talked about Destiny and played it a lot before the Taken King, but it was it definitely wasn't like an every night type thing. And now it's like, I I still have so much... I, to do in the game like the the number of guns in the game and I love playing around with all the different guns in the game is like just absurd and um there's so many different ways to get them there's just there's just a ton to do but yeah other than just new content there was balance changes um there was new subclasses I guess that kind of all fits into new content uh, but a lot about what I want to say is a lot about the game was reworked so that essentially it was more fun to play and uh, I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this there's more incentive for you to play more often I like uh, I'm going to approach the question from a kind of the opposite tack sure. which is that I feel like every time WoW gets an expansion, like, I don't know about RP Gamer, but, like, plenty of places do actually, like, put it in consideration for is that game of the year? And I feel like the reason it never wins, uh, like, you know, content updates don't generally get put into, lumped into that, but sure. expansions certainly do. And I feel like the reason it never wins is kind of the same reason that, like, fighting games don't win. It's because they, like, they're so wrapped up in... Uh, excuse me. Uh, it's, uh, the reason that like MMO expansions don't win is sort of the same reason that fighting games don't win. Is that judging how well they did their job requires kind of a really close, like a really sharp eye, and a really close examination of what they actually changed and how they went about doing it. Sure. Like unless you've got a long history with what the product already was, for the most part, you're not usually going to understand just what made it better and why that was such a game changer that it's worth like that it's worth saying yes this was the best thing released this year and even if a whole ton was changed you know it'd still be difficult to consider like a whole different game and thus you know <laughs> eligible for a game of the year type of thing yeah which is also usually why they don't they only bring up like uh it's only brought into question when it's like a piece of content that is entirely new. 
rather than alterations to old content. Yeah, but to me, honestly, if you're talking about these online games, you know, I include Destiny in this, I think it's a mistake to consider even consider it for a game of the year until after its first year. Because I don't think you could truly understand the quality of an online game like that until it's been consumed and, you know, problems have been come up and resolved and things like that. These games are big and they need to grow and, you know, the developers, as much as they beta the thing, you know, they you really need, like, a real live environment to really see where it's going to go. Same reason predicting MMO success at all is a complete crapshoot. Oh, for sure. Like, oh, well, you know, this looks like it's got good ideas, but, you know, who knows how well it'll be supported and in what fashion after the first month. Yeah, and, you know, you look at something like uh, the Old Republic MMO, and you you think, oh, Star Wars, that should be like a surefire Star Wars, Bioware, trying to create something that attracts people that don't normally play MMOs, and it just sort of landed like a dull thud. Bit of shame. But, but, you know, it's just, you know, there wasn't a market to be found there, and (laughs) it kind of fizzled. It's it's still, to this day, a difficult market to figure out. Yeah, it's an Uh, unpredictable market. It's a volatile market, but it's also a lucrative one, so people are going to keep trying. Yeah. Um, As far as WoW's numbers go, I think it had like a huge increase when the expansion first came out, and then like basically none of those people stayed. So I don't... It's it's the expansion life cycle. Yeah, I think the drop-off is a bit exaggerated, especially considering the fact that it's... the, The last numbers I saw, it was still like a substantially larger user base than any other MMO out there, so... I think at its lowest points, it's been about 6 million. Yeah. Like that. The, the big problem that they're running into is that... And, and the reason that they stopped reporting isn't as prob... Well, at least to my best guess, the reason that they stopped reporting isn't uh, that they took one substantial loss that they don't want to talk about. It's that the numbers are, you know, they're on the waning end because it's an MMO that is 11 years old now, nearly 12. And it's really kind of beyond time for them to do a new one of some sort. There's no logical successor. They killed its logical successor so they could make Overwatch instead. Yeah. So, like, essentially, the only reason they ever reported numbers to begin with was because it made, like, it looked good in marketing to say, like, over X million number of people playing. But the the issue they're going to run into is that there's no way to really staunch the bleeding at this point. Yeah. Because there's so much stuff. Like, there's just so much to wow at this point. It can't attract new people. It's got 12 years of baggage. It has difficulty reattracting people who've already played it because there's not enough ability to change the basic framework to say this is so new you have to play it consistently as often as you used to. Yeah. And so what they they run into is they release a new expansion and they get a giant subscriber boost for about 3 months. And then the people that came back to see the new content have seen the new content and leave. And so what they're trying to do, what I remember reading when this when these numbers were reported was that uh they're trying to fast-track more expansions. If they can just bring more expansions, they'll get those boosts more often. But mm. I think that's a losing battle because yeah. over the long term, what you're going to run into is that 
it's no longer an event that WoW got a new expansion. It's time to check back in. It's now, oh, WoW got a new expansion. Oh, well, they did that like a year ago, so I guess I don't have to worry too much. So <laughs> I'll just check back in next year. And like that, that becomes like the reason that a new expansion can drag so many people back is, oh man, a new WoW expansion. I haven't played that in forever, and there's going to be so much new content. So it's a combination of the fact that there's new content and that people have had a break from it. Yeah. So that that casual player that isn't playing all the time has multiple reasons to come back. You know, I don't think that WoW is ever going to... WoW at some point is probably just going to enter the same phase that EverQuest is still in. Just... EverQuest is still releasing new expansion packs. Let me go look at this. It's yeah. going to be uh, tragic. EverQuest. No, you keep talking. I was just going to say, they're probably going to have like even larger than EverQuest, just a fan base that wants to keep playing the game, and that's fine. EverQuest's um, most recent expansion came out three months ago. Wow. EverQuest, uh, The Broken Mirror, it's the 22nd expansion pack. I have no words. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we're approaching that point with WoW, where it's time for Blizzard as a company to release a new MMO, and maybe not even a new MMO, to be honest. I mean, they've got Hearthstone that has an obscene number of players. I, I think the Overwatch. fact that they allowed... Uh, I think the fact they allowed Project Titan to mutate into a multiplayer first-person shooter is proof <laughs> that they don't think that a new MMO is a good idea. Yeah. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. No, that's fine. An online shooter like that, I think, is a good investment as well. We'll see. Yeah. Like, I mean, Valve is still making money off of Team Fortress 2. Yep. Making money off of, hey guys, hats. <laughs> I, I need to stop myself before I uh, just sort of laugh at the, the idea that Valve still makes games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Valve. Hey, remember Half-Life 3? That game's never coming out. The, <laughs> the lead writer of Half-Life just retired. That pretty much says it all. <laughs> I, it was just like, oh, well, I guess you don't need me anymore. <laughs> My job here is done. <sighs> Alright, shall we move on? I think we've yeah, pretty yeah. much hit everything here. Alright. So next we get to talk about mana. Oh man. Uh good old mana. Is it is it really? <laughs> no, no it's not. It's not let's, let's read the question. Okay. This is, this is from Budai. Yes. What do you two think about the new Final Fantasy Adventure remake? I'm gonna get a little opinionated here and say this game looks ugly as sin. Almost all the hallmark, hallmark things I dislike visually. Did I read that? Almost all of the... of The hallmarks of things uh, I dislike. Actually. Thank you. Uh, 
visually it's hitting. Thank you. Feel free to disagree. It's all for the sake of discussion. Uh, it's kind of an ugly game. It looks it looks like them trying to get the last gasp out of uh, the FF3 DS engine. Yeah. Like, because, you know, they made the 3D, they made FF3 uh, DS and FF4 DS, and then they made the 3D version of the After Years for iOS and Android, and this looks like the last gasp of that engine, which is long in the tooth, made for something that's pretty darn dated hardware-wise to begin with. I think the weirder thing is more just like... So, so for those that don't know, like they announced a Seiken Densetsu uh, Final Fantasy Adventure remake again. That, that was the funny thing, is that the, remake, the remake's trailer is a bunch of shots of the original black and white Game Boy game, uh, followed by a bunch of shots of the new like FF3DS-styled 3D remake. And it never acknowledges that the game's already been remade once. <laughs> there's a, there's a, you know, there's the TBA Sword of Mana that like never even shows up here. Uh, Sword of Mana was not the prettiest thing that Square ever made, but it was still a better looking game than this. Better because looking it wasn't very cheap, because it wasn't really cheap looking 3D. Yeah, it was like, be- better looking. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would say not, not much anything else. Yeah, like I hated uh, that game. I, I've, I'm given to understand that it's awful, but I never played it. <laughs> the, the best thing I ever heard about it was someone saying that it was the only game in the history of the world that ha- introduces a character named Dark Lord and then spends two hours hand wringing over whether he's evil or not. <laughs> but uh, like. This is this is gonna devolve into a, uh, a <coughs> talking about mana as a whole because I feel this is an easy target. Um, so so when they announced this, they talked about how they would they if this does well, they might do more uh, Seiken Densetsu remakes and who knows maybe even Seiken Densetsu Five. And aside from the fact that this is a strange jumping off point, it brought in me the question of how how does mana keep happening. <laughs> Because the last time that a universally liked installment came out was nearly two decades ago. There are It's been a huh? long time. <laughs> like there there's like Legend of Mana is a cult classic that I happen to like for its Shirkuazuness. But, you know, like that was at the time the response to Legend of Mana was this isn't really the sequel I wanted to Secret of Mana. Yeah. Uh like you know, no one. There, it's hard to get a straight answer on how good Second uh, Densetsu Three is, because, like, the only people that have ever played it are people that played the fan translation, and people that play fan translations tend to have a lot more invested in whether something is good or not. <laughs> so they're either thoroughly disappointed with it because they were really looking forward to finally playing a sequel to Secret of Mana, or they're so enraptured by the fact that they're finally playing a sequel to Secret of Mana that they're like, it's the most amazing game ever. Yeah. But, but like, it, it's weird because, like, in both America and Japan, there seems to be this tacit acknowledgement that whatever is the most recent uh, piece of mana-related media was a tremendous mistake, and that this new piece of mana-related media will bring the series back to its former glory. And 
the tragic thing is I'm not convinced that's possible because I'm not really sure if anyone involved really knows if it's possible to put that lighting, lightning back in a bottle. Probably not. It's like, it's like you know, you've got Final Fantasy Adventure, which was a reasonably well-received black and white Game Boy game. But, you know, people don't really remember Final Fantasy Adventure. They don't remember Seiken Densetsu 1 Final Fantasy Gaiden. They remember Seiken Densetsu 2, and in Japan, apparently sometimes they remember Seiken Densetsu 3. Uh... But, like, you know, every few years, Square seems to make it its mission, okay, we're going to make Mana a big franchise. And they they go at it like they're killing cats. They release about three games, and those games are all two-a-man bad ideas. So, like... What, Heroes of Mana was a bad idea? Real-time uh, strategy in the DS? Yeah, that was, like, what was even the thought? What was... What was who was that meant to appeal to? <laughs> you know, it was meant to appeal to... Um... Like, hmm. I, I know the one person that it might theoretically have been meant to appeal to, and I still don't think that they liked it either. <laughs> but, like, it was meant to appeal to people that just really wanted to freaking order around hundreds of rabbites. <laughs> like, I'm not even talking about that. I mean, like, they did Sword of Mana, and no one really liked it. No one talks about it. They don't want to talk about it, evidently, because they didn't bring it up. Then, uh, so, like, they, and in Japan, they, they were kind of careful about this in Japan. In America, they didn't have this luxury, but in Japan, they were kind of careful about this because they had the luxury of not calling any of these Seiken Densetsu 4 until they really shat the bed. Mm. Because then they made Dawn of Mana. <laughs> A few years after oh. Thor. And that might be the nadir of the franchise. <laughs> because as ill-advised as Heroes of Mana is, and as completely mistargeted as it was, it at least had more of a re... Like, it at least had the excuse of, oh, it's a spinoff, we wanted to do something else with the Revenant Wings engine. Why did we make Revenant Wings? I don't understand. <laughs> um... But uh, we want to do something more with the Revenant Wings engine, just throw some Mana characters in it, whatever. In uh, Dawn of Mana, on the bright side for America, by the time it came out, people no longer trusted the Mana name. <laughs> <laughs> on the downside, in Japan, they called it Seiken Densetsu 4. That was a slight Which, mistake. <laughs> in marketing terms, was, this, was like if they had called it Secret of Mana 2. <laughs> uh, that was a that was a bad choice. That was an unfortunate choice. But I, I feel like that that's that's what they do every few years. Like they release another couple of mana games with the idea that like, okay, we'll we'll make mana a thing. People like mana back in the day. Let's do mana again. And then like it comes out and it doesn't do well. <laughs> But they've also never poured enough money into it to definitively say that there's no way it could have done well. So after a few years, they get it in their head to try again, and this keeps happening. Yeah, I remember reading some interview uh, for somebody that was in charge of that. I don't remember the name. Koichi Ishii, who was in charge of all of them through Dawn of Mana. Yeah, and he basically said he didn't want to... Forget exactly how it was worded, but basically didn't want to do the same thing every time, and that's why they kept doing random, weird nonsense. 
which, which I makes can no understand s- on some level. Yeah. I can under- like, I, 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 I would be hypocritical to say that I don't enjoy radical reinvention, but at the same time, like... Like Mana five, as a franchise has five different radical no reinventions <laughs> at once. Like it, it has basically no identity. Like it'll it'll just keep changing into something that like what people remember of Secret of Mana might actually be more important than what Secret of Mana ever was. Like they remember having a good time with nice music and pretty sprite graphics. Uh, playing with a couple of friends while they, you know, hacked and slashed through an action RPG. And that was super important. Also, that's uh, not really a recreatable experience at this point. Like, you can give it, you could make a game that had nice graphics and nice music and was a multiplayer action RPG, and people would be confused because there is that sort of thing that exists now, but they're all loot farms. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Um, you know, remembering playing with some of my friends that loved that game and my own memories of that game, it was the whole getting to play like a JRPG type of game with friends. Yeah. Uh, instead of like Diablo and all that. Like you said, the loot farms, that there's not really like, uh, I don't know, like not necessarily even JRPG, just like the whole epic adventure type multiplayer RPGs out there really to this day there aren't really too many yeah and I I feel like if they were willing to define that as that's what's Mana's identity that would at least be an experiment worth having yes and I think they could do a lot with that and I think they almost came close to something like that with the original uh, not Crystal Crystal Bearers Crystal Chronicles yeah Uh, although that Never could never really go anywhere because it required everyone to have Game Boys for controllers. Yeah, like it's really tragic that that was made before the era of online. Yeah, but you know that's that's all the more reason that like now this this idea could thrive for people that like the idea of playing an RPG with friends, but they don't want the loot treadmill. Like there is probably a some sort of niche, but like it's also an inherently less profitable niche. For sure, like, and so that's why, and that, so that's why you know when they bring it back, they're bringing it back as this sort of ugly, low-budget 3D affair because it's like they don't want to commit too much money to this. I'm not even convinced that they're convinced that this is a good idea. But every oh, few years, not. they're going to keep trying until they really take a bath on it. <laughs> but given the amount of money they actually seem to be putting into these, I can only imagine that really take a bath on it would be seven copies sold. <laughs> Well, I'm sure they could attempt to find some happy middle ground between the loot farmers and the the epic style, the original Secret of Mana. Yeah, you can, you can you can marry those two things. They like there have been occasional attempts, like Dungeon Siege Three, with an attempt to marry a normal Western RPG and a uh, Diablo-like, to uh, varying degrees of success. But it's like, and then only I liked it. It seems <laughs> I kind of liked it. I enjoyed it. But, yes. uh, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like people who set out to make that sort of loot treadmill game, you know, they build it around the treadmill, right? And that's that's where all of the game design goes. Uh, yeah, mana. It's it's kind of 
tragic, but like it, the, the question really awoke in me, like the strong question of like, what what is the ideal for what mana becomes at this point? Like, mm. and to me, I, I feel like we kind of hashed out an identity for it to have that could thrive, but you know, yeah, they don't seem too interested in giving it any sort of identity other than hey, let's try that mana thing again. Maybe we can make a few bucks yeah. off that. Because at this point, they're just concerned that, and probably validly so, that, like, it's not Mana. that Like, Mana's power as a brand is entirely, at this point, wrapped up in, I remember liking this 20 years ago. <laughs> yep. And not even really that specific in what they remember liking. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just... I, I hope that like they improve. Maybe if maybe if this remake is successful, they'll make a less ugly second and sexy <laughs> two remake like they threatened to. Well, that would be interesting. And you know, I, I'm not too worried about the graphics. I I just want to see how this plays because it could be pretty fun. It just it, to to me the better part of Mana's aesthetic package was always the music anyway. Yeah, agreed. Uh, not that like, not that the original mana was like ugly or anything, but yeah, it's, it's not just that the the part you remembered was the music. Ex- and the exactly, were nice, but, yeah. But the music was something that was very unique and interesting, and then got remixed in even weirder fashions. <laughs> if you've ever heard any of the mana remix albums, it's really <laughs> weird. Like the 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 remix album that's uh, inter- the interesting remix album that I've heard all the way through uh, you know from Square of that era with Chrono Trigger Brink of Time, the infamous like breakfast uh, album cover Chrono Trigger but uh, <laughs> which has like really interesting jazz arrangements it's pretty good actually but uh, but like there's a I think it's called Secret of Mana Plus that is like taking tracks and like arranging them into one giant like soundscape that it's like 45 minutes long. Weird. Yeah, it's it's a weird album. I've never listened to all of it. I've heard bits of it. It's very strange. <laughs> uh, but no, you know, like it's it's worth noting that Secret of Mana was the kind of like the those Mana games at the time had soundtracks that were interesting enough to do that with. Yeah. But uh, you know, I like, if they can get the music right and the game plays good, I mean, who knows? Yeah, could it's, be fine, and, could be fun. It's, it's a touch-controlled iOS and Android game, so I'm not convinced I'll be able to enjoy it, but... <laughs> well, there there will be a Vita version in Japan, so I'm going to look out. Yeah, we're not getting that. <laughs> well, you know, there's always the possibility of that coming out in Asia, in yeah, English. Yeah, come out in Asia, especially if the if the iOS and Android version get the translation, which they sort of implied, because I think they announced that the those versions were getting a localization, but not the Vita version. Yeah, yeah, it was funny because they have like basically the same website for English and Japanese, except and just one of them <laughs> lists the Vita and one's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just like, oh well, then, but you know that that might. <laughs> Like, they might go to the trouble of putting that on a Vita cartridge in Asia, and then you'll import that, and it'll be a playable version. Yeah. So we'll see. Although, at this point, I'm not even 100% sure it's actually coming out physically, even in Japan. It might just be, like, a digital release. Yeah, like, as a digital-only release, it makes a lot more sense, given the budget it looks like it's working on. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the other thing that I keep bringing back up. This looks low budget. Oh yeah, for sure. This is this is at best an attempt to test the waters. <laughs> up next, low budget remake of Einhander. <laughs> oh man. And everyone can be confused about whether that's the shooter or the uh, Final Fantasy fighting game. <laughs> That's what happens when you name everything after German words. That's true. Alright, so Budai has some other Final Fantasy, or not, sorry, has some other Square Enix related questions, and I think we should kind of just jump into those at the same time. Yeah, sure. While we're thinking about it. Alright. Um, next one is, have you ever noticed how some tiny game design can change a game? Compare Final Fantasy X to Final Fantasy XIII. Final Fantasy X, while very linear and cutscenes focused, didn't feel as limited as Final Fantasy XIII for some reason. Um, yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, even though they are similar in build, the small deviation in areas really changes the feel, feel of the game in its entirety. Pulse area in Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 13 was probably more open than most areas in Final Fantasy 10, but it was a little too late. Even though I don't hate FF 13, to let it be known, even with my problems with the game, uh, I can see what he's saying because if you look at a strictly exploration perspective from those two games, they kind of feel similar. Like, uh, if you look at the strict way that they are arranged, they're, you know, like, they're both really hyper-linear games. Like, there's always something in your way to block you from going in, uh, in alternate paths, like, in FF10. even. But FF10, like, the thing about it is that FF10 is a little less... is a little more open to exploiting player psychology to make that seem less obvious. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the thing, is... Basically, Final Fantasy Thirteen is much more open, probably much too, <laughs> much too much. So it, it, it's nakedly obvious yeah. that there's no like branches for the first six hours, like and you know like the the you know infamous memes about like the hallway, like the game does not even attempt to exploit player psychology to divert from that idea. Like, you know, the games that are hyperlinear have gotten pretty good about not making that too obvious because they'll include dead ends, they'll include turns. But because of, like, partially because of the way that FF13 is arranged, oftentimes, even when the pathway should technically be turning, it doesn't feel like it because the camera is arranged in such a way that you're sort of, you're always following behind the back. Right. So, like, it feels even more linear than it actually is. And that's, like, it's, like, the opposite of how you should be exploiting player <laughs> psychology. Like, you want the player to feel like an adventure even though, you know, you logically can't literally create a world. Right. But because of the, the fact that the game is largely sort of cobbled together from what happened to be finished, uh, it didn't really have the luxury of trying to work to play upon player psychology, all it can do is try to make sure that it doesn't fall apart. Yeah, and it's mostly just like, here's some pretty areas. You get to walk yeah. through them. Yeah, like run through these areas, like, oh, there's some some slight up and down geography, but there's never really any left-right geography. 
Like you just you keep moving forward, and then people start talking, and so and you lose that. Like part of the problem is also that like characters stand in place when talking. Like cutscenes never take you from place to place unless there's a chapter break. So you always are sort of noticing that like. The game, the game can never whisk you away from one area to another and make it seem like a big, sweeping, breathtaking thing that's happening. It only ever does that, like, once or twice. Like, when Saz and Vanille, like, they get out of a cave. I'm trying... I'm pulling on, like, six-year-olds. <laughs> they, they, like... They leave a cave, and, like, it opens out, in, and you see this, like, sort of giant, breathtaking vista. And that doesn't really go anywhere, but it feels more open than most of the areas, just because you're seeing like this giant thing that you never really explore, but it's there. You yeah. can see it. <coughs> and that's and that's just like I, I feel like there is like this underestimation of player psychology, and it's kind of interesting because a lot of genres really rely on making the player feel something regardless of what they're actually doing. Like, puzzles in a video game aren't meant to be hard for the most part. They're meant to be hard enough that you feel clever when you are right. Mm. Or, like, survival horror games, like, in, in, the, origi- in the like original Resident Evil paradigm. Like, I, I showed some friends while I was playing the Resident Evil remake, H- uh, the HD version. Uh, I streamed it for some friends. And I just sort of showed off just how much ammo is in that game. <laughs> because I finished it, and I had 150 pistol shots, 60-some uh, shotgun shells, like 40 or 50 different uh, like grenades. Like, there's so much ammo in that game. But it's so reliant on the player being panicked that they're going to waste it and they're not going to spot it where it always is. Hmm. And, and that's, you know, player psychology is a really important, like it's not, there's no objective. Like this is an ideal way to design something to feel like this, but you have to sort of play on setting a player's expectations and then, you know, enforcing or betraying them as is useful to you. So like when, you know, you see like, I, I guess for example, you get to something like, you know, a shooter like Gears of War. You sh- you go through a hallway, and like, there's a uh, you'll see like rubble and various things that are in your way. You know, you can see there's things here that you're just not able to breach at this point because it like it would be a lot of work for your character, and they would find no reward in doing it. But you also get things like you're walking towards something, and then something knocks down the wall and then you have to find another path and even though in any realistic sense you only ever had one option the world feels larger for having had what appeared to be an option taken away from you right totally (laughs) no (laughs) that 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 makes total sense and if you uh go in with shooters again if you look at like a lot of shooters that are super linear uh, just like Final Fantasy Thirteen, they do a really good job of just creating a lot of action and just a lot of things going on. They distract from it so that exactly. you never really think about the geography of where you're going. It's just like you don't have time to... Th- like, part of the other problem is that, you know, FF13 is a JRPG, so, like, 
You are exactly. either running through environment or you're in a battle. And when you're in a battle, you don't think about the environment because you've been taken to the battle dimension. And when you're uh, in the environment, you don't have to worry about action. So, like, it becomes thoroughly obvious that, you know, you're just walking down the hallway. <laughs> and no matter how they gussy up the hallway, unless they're able, unless they're, you know, twisting and they're turning and they're, like, having your characters do dynamic things, they can't really hide that it's a hallway. Right. Like, FF10, what it liked to do was it would, like, it liked to sweep the camera around and then, like, characters would sort of walk and talk in certain areas, so it sort of looked like they were moving further than they were. Like, there were lots of just little things, like, there'd be little pockets of area for you to sort of wander off into that never went anywhere, but they looked like they were an area, like, they were... They were a distraction from moving forward. Right. So you ended up with, like, all of these little things that made it less obvious that you're running down a hallway. Because it is interesting if you actually have to walk. <clears throat> like, I remember, uh, for whatever reason, I needed to walk FF10's world back to front. You Like, when you do try to walk from one end to the other, it becomes obvious just how much it's a hallway with a couple of breakpoints <laughs> that literally... That literally can't connect to each other. Like, there, there is no way to... If you, if you the player, aren't using the airship, you're never going to get from Makalania Wood, uh, Wood Temple uh, onward to any other further part of the game just by walking, because the story requires you to be moved uh, by the plot event that happens there, and you get moved into, uh, like, the Albed Desert. And, you know, there's nothing, there's no connective tissue from the Albed, uh, from Makalania to Albed Desert. There's no connecting tissue from Albed Desert to Uvel. Uh, but there is a slight connection from Bavel back to Makalania Woods. Yeah, I remember noticing this a lot more playing Final Fantasy X-2. Yeah, Tenzu really exposes the weaknesses the weaknesses of FF10's level design because Tenzu is designed to be wandered backwards and forwards. Right. And it's like, well, this this is unfortunate. Yeah, and Tenzu's method of disguising that is never giving you a reason to walk it backwards to forwards. It always, it like you since you always have the airship, there's never a reason to walk backwards, uh, walk the world back to front. Right. There's always it would always just make more sense. Oh, I'll go to the airship and then I'll fly there. But you know, like thirteen was sort of just left with like we don't have time to manipulate player <laughs> psychology to make this look good. Like we can make this look pretty. It looks pretty. That's going to have to suffice. And hey, it was really pretty. <laughs> It was really pretty. <laughs> it had some likable characters. It didn't really have a plot, but it had some likable characters. So, you know, that's more than a lot of games can say. It's true. Um, yeah, I don't want to go into the whole discussion of Final Fantasy XIII. Yeah, it's, it's but, absolutely not a debate worth yeah. having. But it isn't. I, I did enjoy having this chance to pontificate uh, <laughs> moronically on like the psychology of game design and the manipulation of the player's ideas. Well, I think it's especially these two games in particular are an especially good illustration of this given how similar they are in linearity and yet how different the two feel 
as we obviously just discussed in detail. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a it's a good case study in all of this. The the best part about it is that if you just listened to what I just said, you would think I liked FF10. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, like yeah, it's it's a game that is more skillful at manipulating your idea of what your journey is actually forcing you to do. <laughs> Final Fantasy. Speaking of Final Fantasy, there was a Final Fantasy movie. Budai wants us to talk about it. See, I need to double check when that came out because I have a suspicion. Okay. Final Fantasy Spirits. Then, I want to uh, say 2000? Pictures. 2001. 2001, okay. It was just before FF10. It probably affected FF10's bottom line on some fashion. Uh, yeah, it came out in the U.S. on July 13th, 2001, which was two weeks before my birthday, which means I saw it on my birthday. Uh, I was confused as to why this had happened. <laughs> uh, Final Fantasy is that like dangerous point where something does take itself too seriously. Yeah. Like, The Spirits Within... It's not awful. It's not... It's not a terribly, like... Divorce it from Final Fantasy's name and what you're left with is a not terribly remarkable uh, science fiction action film. Yeah. Like, I remember the, the going up to this movie thinking, like, oh, despite all these trailers, I'm sure there'll be some classic Final Fantasy in there. And, well, nope. Not really. And like, it's just like a weird sci-fi movie. Like, it's, it's really sci-fi. Like, yeah. Final Fantasy had been trending sci-fi at that point, but it was always weird sci-fi fantasy. Like, the, the hardest sci-fi that you got in Final Fantasy was this cyberpunk-looking Midgar of FF7. But that yeah. was always, like... But Midgar was always, like, a contrast to the world map that was around it, that was clearly still a world of magic, even if, like... Like, industry had created a cyberpunk dystopia right in the middle of it. Right. But, like, Spirits Within was, like, not even, like, it was, you know, it's just pure science fiction. Like, there's no real, like, there's fantasy in the sense of, like, the weird planet spirits, but those are basically just aliens. Yeah. Like, there's there's no reason to think of them as anything other than aliens. And so it it never really feels like there's any fantasy in it. And I can't help but wonder if that had something to do with, like, the, like, assumption that... Fa like, I know that before Lord of the Rings, there was this sort of, like, taboo on really big-budget fantasy movies. But, I don't know. Like, it was, it was, a, it was a miscalculation. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's weird how bad of a miscalculation it was. Like, a it's just not that interesting you could have shot something much fairly similar in a much cheaper fashion by using actual people uh, and that leads into the thing I was going to say about like how bad of a miscalculation it was is kind of fascinating yeah, it almost because, destroyed like, the, the, the whole company <laughs> yeah like they took like a like it's okay let me look at the budget um, budget was $137 million reported. 
Uh, box office take was $85 million, so that's right off the top. It's a $52 million loss. Beyond that, that's not taking into account marketing budget. Mm. Marketing budget was probably fairly substantial, so I would estimate they lost $100 million on that. It was like they took such a bath on this, and part of the reason they did it was that they made an all-CGI film. And part of the reason they did that was that they thought that they were going to have a, like, stable of digital actors. <laughs> it's like they were threatening to bring back, like, Aki Ross's character model, the star, in other Square Pictures films. And that, you know, the second that Final Fantasy The Spirits Within came out, it died. That idea went away forever. Yeah. But, like... Imagine it's interesting to imagine would they have taken such a bad bath on it if they had released just a live action film with CG like monstrosities for them to shoot at. It's a good question. But yeah, like it's also probably worth noting. I remember basically nothing about this film plot. <laughs> yeah. I remember like a couple characters having weird last stand deaths that you know, sort of, yeah, that happened, like, I'm trying to remember who all was even in this, um, uh, uh, Ming-Na Wen, Alec Baldwin, Donald Sutherland, James Woods, Bing Rames. Yeah, freaking James Woods. Uh, Perry Caplini and Steve Buscemi. I remember Ving Rames' character dying, but that's not surprising in retrospect. Uh, I remember Alec Baldwin's character dying near the climax because that was the tragic love story or whatever. Yeah. And that's about all I remember about this film. There's not... It's a really unremarkable story. Yeah, remember how his character died, if I remember correctly. They thought they were, like, safe, and then, oh, whoops, randomly, there's one of the ghost things, and he's dead. I seem to recall, like, something about space cancer or whatever. And then, like, yeah, like, it, it was weird, and... It's like, oh, they, like, they're 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 ghosts, but they're ghosts from an alien world, and then they when they go through from, you, you die. Spirits or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and they can they can fall through you and you die. It was yeah. it was it wasn't a compelling threat. The characters are not memorable. I don't remember a single one of them's name except Aki Ross, and that's only because I'm always laughing at the digital actress concept. <laughs> um there were a couple of people that that tried that in the late in the mid to late nineties. Uh, Kenji Ino had uh, the the three games connected by the protagonist Laura, who was like referred to by them as a digital actress. Um, but yeah, no, like the like I don't remember very much about this film. It's not that interesting at the best of times, like. It's nothing you would ever... As I recall, it's nothing I would go out of my way to say, oh, don't ever watch that, it's awful. But it's not bad enough to be funny, and it's not good enough to be actually entertaining. No. It's just, it was a bit it's just, interesting at the time, but... You know, I don't... It was a mildly impressive technology showcase. But you knew that something was wrong when the most logical thing they did with all of the models was the thriller dance. I think I've only watched it like once since. Yeah, I, I since saw it then. when it was new, and I might have seen it on DVD sometime around a year later. It, man, they were, they had so many strange plans for this movie because I remember there was also rumblings at the time 
that they were going to have a special DVD that only ran on the PS2 that would allow you to like like retroactively change aspects of the film and it was just like what <laughs> and like there i think what that ultimately came out to was allowing you to uh if you inserted the dvd into the ps2 you would be able to make slight alterations to the camera angle in a couple of scenes <laughs> it was a it was a weird thing there was so much like so much money went into this concept without seemingly anyone being that concerned about what it ultimately produced. Yeah. Took a staff of 200 about 4 years to complete, 141,964 frames. Jeez. Render farm consisting of 960 workstations. Yeah, yeah, Square intended to make the character of Aki Ross into the world's first photorealistic computer-animated actress with plans for appearances in multiple films in different roles. Well, that worked that, out that, well. That idea was always like, why would you chase this weird unicorn you've created? <laughs> like, why did you want this to be the thing that happened? Like, what what benefit do you get from that? Like... Do you, do you get the horror show we're subjected to now where Lightning's telling me about how much she likes Louis Vuitton clothing? <laughs> that actually happened. Yeah, I keep forgetting about that. That's weird. Like, it, it wasn't just that she appeared in, like, a Louis Vuitton ad. They, they published just recently an in-character interview of her talking about how cool it is to be able to actually wear clothes instead of armor now. Oh, that is... I didn't even know and about it's the that. That's saddest weird. Thing in the, it's the saddest thing in recorded human history. Oh. Let's try this digital actress thing all over again. She's going to be modeling all sorts of clothes that don't exist because they're part of a computer render. <laughs> uh, don't don't go down that hole again, Square. Like, you had the good sense that when the spirits within tanked that you weren't going to just try to keep pushing Aki Ross FF13 is done you don't need to tell me you don't need to keep trying to like make Lightning the main FF character it's okay <laughs> she was in her story and her story is over let it be and two thirds of that story were fun times man you're going to have a hard time getting any two people to agree on what two thirds you're talking about that's fine <laughs> That's fine. Uh, I am but, okay with that. But yeah, like I, I know which two thirds you're talking about, and I think <laughs> that all three of them are interesting games. But the point, but my my response would be one third of that story was coherent, but it's done now. <laughs> yeah, I'm being kind of generous when I say that one third of it was coherent. Yeah, that uh, that first game story is uh, it's confused. It's confused, but the wood. <laughs> Excuse me. It, its characters are good enough that you can forgive parts of it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The thing about one that makes it stand out over the others is the fact yeah, that its its story works better than the others. Other two. Well, its characters all. work well enough that you're willing to ignore that the story doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, like with the other two, they kind of. Yeah, like, we won't get into the 13 discussion unless someone asks about it, but, you know, the other two, they they have interesting gameplay, but their stories are just as incoherent, and they've also thrown out most of the characters. Yeah. So. 
But let's let's move on. We've discussed the tragic history of Final Fantasy Spirit Within. Yeah. If I were to try to record what I thought when I walked out of it, I think I would I would have been. Uh, I guess that was okay. <laughs> I think my response would be, well, I think my response at the time was, well, that was cool. Let's go see it again. Because you know, this was uh, after I graduated. It was the summer before college. And we're like, no, let's go see a different movie instead. So we went to see AI. Wow, that's how you decided to find the one down downgrade you could have for a sci-fi movie at that time. <laughs> that was that was a day. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Stanley Kubrick, and I'm sorry, Steven Spielberg, but you guys didn't mix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many endings? You know what? I'm not. Nope. 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 No, I, I need to hear the last part of that. What? I was going to say, how many different en- how many different ending points did AI have? Uh, I think at least three. Yeah. <sighs> All right. It was it was a strange case, but yeah. we'll move on. All right. All right, so we have one more question from Budai. I think we missed. Yeah, well, it, it didn't quite fit with the others, so I decided it needed to be sort of sectioned off. Um, this was this was put in along with the question about Final Fantasy Adventure, but it was different. So there are some people that believe a game can't be too long, that as long as it's good, it can go on forever. What do you think of that notion, and what are some games you believe are too long? Uh, well, I think that the uh, qualifier, as long as it's good, is a really hard <laughs> one. Like, it's such a strong qualifier, because it's like, it, it, it's one of those things where, like, I hear the phrase, as long as it's good, or if done right. Yeah. Uh, a lot, in terms of internet argument, because it's like, you know, it's it's essentially a platonic ideal argument, where it's like, okay, if done right... But like you're, you are in in that argument. You are tacitly assuming this will be good. Therefore, it could be good. Hmm. Because the phrase "if done right" means okay, it was done as well as it possibly could be. It's good. Right. <laughs> like the only things that don't qualify as uh, good if done right are things that are patently offensive to begin with, and thus probably not something you want to argue for in the first place. Like no one's going to talk about how like freaking neo-Nazi propaganda is good if done right. <laughs> but that's because like doing that right is still an ugly outcome. But uh like, you know, if you know, if like there I don't think that there's a hard and fast limit of this is too long, like this many hours is too many hours, but like if it's good is a really tall question to make. Because the longer a game goes on, the less it has the chance to really, like, reinvent itself in enough ways to stay interesting. Yeah. Like, what was good 20 hours in probably isn't going to remain as interesting 80 hours in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if we look at games that are specifically long and 
to some extent intended to be long, like something like Persona 4, if you try and stretch that out to some insane degree, at some point it's just not going to work all that like, well. Like, and, like Persona maybe, 4 is kind of the ideal of this, because it sure. is super long, but it has ju- it it knows when to stop. Yes. Like and when and when they extend the length in like golden, they uh they pull a new wrinkle on it because it needs a new wrinkle in order to maintain interest. Sure, I was gonna say if you try and extend that to some insane nth degree, you're gonna probably gonna stretch the writers to some point where they can't create something that works as a cohesive whole. Yeah, and then it's like, like you know, you get you get to something like. Dragon Quest Seven, which, I mean, okay, I can't speak for it personally, but like apples to apples, I would imagine that the late game content is probably about as well constructed as the early game content. But by that point, it's so long that a lot of people just stop caring. Yeah. Like the Dragon Quest Seven being the canonical example of the really, really long single player RPG. <laughs> and like the the thing about that game, um that I remember, and this is the original release I'm talking about, was that a lot yeah, of those we're, stories... we're talking the PS1 version because yeah. it's infamous to see them longer. <laughs> if we compare it to something like uh, Persona 4, uh, like the story segments and things in Dragon Quest 7 were pretty interesting. The only problem was, unlike Persona 4, where it's well-paced and well-balanced between story segments and you know the, the dungeon segments and things like that, it just like battles and dungeons and Dragon Quest Seven just take up so much time, especially when you have to grind. That there isn't a really good balance. Yeah, the 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 other thing I would think of is that you know, to the best of my knowledge, Dragon Quest Seven is a fairly vignette uh, sort of based game where like oh, for sure you you have the overarching plot, but it takes a backseat to what's happening individually at any given moment. Right. And to each of these individual places that have their own little plots that they're concerned about. Uh, Persona 4, part of the way that like it works is that like it, no matter what's happening, you're still like concerned about the core murder mystery. Right. So like you you don't feel like it should be done, whereas a vignette-based storyline does run much more the risk of losing your interest because it's like well that story's done is the game over yet no oh oh <laughs> like it, for me the the example i feel of a game most betrayed by its length is okami which ah yes like even people i know that like it always talk about it as a great game and it's two sequels <laughs> because like okami is sort of split into like three arcs and the first arc is pretty much done at 15 hours, and it feels like the game is basically over at that point. But then it just keeps going. <laughs> and it, like... There there are situations where narratively it makes sense to leave the player feeling slightly more meandering, but it's a really dangerous place to leave someone, because at some point, like, when you leave someone without a clear sense of purpose that's a really easy place to check out of caring about the narrative. Right. Because I know it's happened to me a few times. Like, FF13, when I first played it, like, I checked out at Chapter 11 because, like, okay, I guess I'm in a big open part and I can move on when I want. 
but like there's not a really obvious like, like where does the narrative go from here hook right and when you leave someone adrift you have to be very careful about how you reel them back in um I'm thinking about um, Rune Factory 4 in this regard, and that kind of that's another sort of game with multiple arcs, but it does a much, probably a much better job than Okami did because it leaves, at least I haven't done all the arcs, I'm just remembering after the first arc, it leaves a lot unanswered because there's kind of like an overarching you know, storyline about the world and things like yeah. that, but um so it kind of just leaves some hooks, but um, uh, I lost my train. Of, what was I going to say? Probably does a, a much better job than Okami, and that, um, and from a gameplay perspective as well, because it's a whole farming sim. So there's plenty for you to do, and you know, um, uh, build and things like that between the different arcs, just to to keep you. Yeah, hooked. like the. The the core na- the the core narrative is not the only thing that's like pulling you forward. And part of the other problem I had with Okami is that it, it sort of felt like, but by the end of the first part, it already sort of feels like, like it's running out of ideas because you get like so Okami is basically Zelda. Like gameplay wise, right. it's Zelda game. Um, by the end of the first arc, you've you've gotten three channel powers, and all channel powers do is you draw a line from a source of, like, an element and where you want that element to go. Mm. And getting three of those is really disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it was, it's also because, like, the game sort of implies that there's a set number of these powers and you've already gotten them. It, like, it sets up the expectation of an ending, which is part of the other reason that it doesn't quite work, at least in my opinion, is that, like, it sets up the expectation, the game's about to end, it's, you know, you're you're building up to the big confrontation, you've heard about Shiranui and, like, the uh, fight that, like, uh, Amaterasu's uh, previous incarnation had with Orochi, and, like, you've gotten all these little bits of detail, and the only one that's really that mysterious that's left is, like, Waka. But other than that, like the the plot feels like it's pretty much done at the end of the first part, and then it just sort of keeps going. <laughs> it keeps going and going and going. Yeah, and then it turns out that there's still another thirty hours of game left. <laughs> like uh, another situation I remember this happening in is uh, uh, Tales of Legendia, which rolls credits <laughs> and then has another plot. And uh, I don't think I've ever spent too much time ranting full tilt about Tales of Legendia. It's my least favorite Tales game, my least favorite RPG on the PS2, and that includes things that I know are patently worse, like Evergrace. Um, just because, like, I, I it, it was a perfect storm of I hated everything about that game, but uh, <laughs> except for the soundtrack, Goshina is good, but uh, the the everything else about that game was garbage to the nth degree. But. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, it was it was a situation where the game rolled credits and then had the gall to sort of act like, oh, but you're not done. And it's like, you finished the plot and we are rolling credits and you want me to play more. 
Uh, and then, like, I talked to someone who liked the game, and they were like, did you play the character quests? They're the second half of the game. And I was like, screw you, the game rolled credits. It's done. <laughs> I'm done with that. <laughs> I think that's kind of an issue that the Tales series has as a whole, though. Just... Oh, yeah, Tales games oftentimes have more content than their, uh... <laughs> than they really can sustain. Yeah. Like, you have, uh... Like, often, like, you know, Symphonia has you... Symphonia might be, like, the least horrible about it, and still has you revisit all of the dungeons to redo certain parts. <laughs> and then, like, like, it just keeps doing that, because it's like... And I guess that's kind of the problem. Like, on some level, reaching the end of something, and you're kind of, like, there, there is that, that certain desire to, like, reach a logical conclusion point and then subvert the expectation keep going and suddenly like the plot's turned on its head and that's why like games like to do that but on some level you reach a point where it's like i reached what seemed like the ending and i was pretty satisfied with the experience and then you told me there's more and now i'm just irritated at it <laughs> because i thought i had a pretty good capstone on my experience and then you were like no there was this other guy who you also have to go and stab go do that and it's just like you know Tales games do that a lot I don't even like I'm not even surprised when it happens anymore because it's like yeah. it's never surprising anymore but uh, like Okami does that where like you kill Orochi and then it's like oh but there's you know there's still bits of its essence floating throughout Japan uh, you need to go destroy all those and it's just like dude I was pretty fine with how things were ended <laughs> I'm done and I feel like that's that's the problem. Is that a lot of times a game feels like it's re building to a conclusion and then tries to subvert it. Like the subverted conclusion in uh, again to use a good example, the subverted conclusion in Persona Four is a dungeon. Yeah. And, and then like it's a fun dungeon. Huh? Yeah, well, it was a fun dungeon, but more importantly, it's a dungeon. Yes. Like, come hell or high water, there's only so much more content that it's going to push on you. A couple more hours? Okay, cool. 20 more hours? No. <laughs> no, no, I was done here. <laughs> okay, but that's that's enough of me ranting about things being yeah. too long. In conclusion, I think things can be too long because there's too much to chance in the like addition of twenty more hours of content. Yeah. Not to use the classic phrase, but I think it really applies that there can be too much of a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like if it's it's merely going to be as good as it was, it's probably better to just end on a high note. Yeah, and sometimes it's good to not just artificially stretch something out. <laughs> you know, Tales games. I'm just still thinking of freaking Tales of the Abyss, which I love that story, but it's just uh, it's just dragged out so long. Yeah. All right, let's move on to something else. <laughs> I think we've uh, dragged this question out too long. Yeah, probably. <laughs> this question's had too much of a good thing. All right.
right, so we got one more question, which is from the Walken dude. Is it Christopher Walken? Uh, probably not. I'm just, <laughs> you know, I don't want to crush your spirit or anything, but I'm pretty sure that Christopher Walken does not listen to this show. I thought we were in an famous. Uh, I'm afraid not. I've really wanted someone to be exo- excoriating us for our lack of cowbell. <laughs> well, I, I do have a fever, but, you know, I'm pretty sure the only prescription is, you know, rest and probably some medicine. Yeah, no, like, I feel like more cowbell will not be the cure. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, but... Let's see. The question is, how do you deal with the backlog of games? Even looking at just new games, I have five or six monstrously long games to get through, and 2006 is going to make it worse. I hear you, dude. I hear you. Um, I think this is just going to vary from person to person. It's kind of just... There's no there's no easy way to answer this because there's just so many games released these days and you know it's easy to be like ooh shiny shiny piece of candy and and you start playing that and enjoy it and it's like ooh new piece of candy uh you just assuming you want to get through the backlog you just got to find a way to find something to focus on or specifically find some games that are easy to pick up and play for you know different bursts like uh, something like Dragon Quest 7 actually once the once the remake comes out yeah don't play don't play the original because that that's too long yeah that, that's doable <laughs> because it's, it's kind of split up into different stories so it's a bit easier to come pick back up. to and then set down and exactly back down. Um, to, I, I'll let you talk about this because I have a different philosophy about backlog. <laughs> sure. Um, so, uh, uh, what I kind of try and do, uh, what's I going to say? I don't really have any easy answer for this, and because the way I got to better handle backlogs was to review games. <laughs> <laughs> Because then, hey, I kind of have. If you, you get a if you get a situation where you're obligated to play it, it's great. <laughs> yeah, because then you have to finish it. The only problem is um, the games you do that with are not always good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, time to play Neptunia Rebirth Volume Three. Oh. You can't escape it now. But yeah, you you just need to find. No, Wales is not actually doing Neptunia Rebirth Volume Three. <laughs> I was going to. I know you were. Yeah. You begged off. Yeah. It's not a bulletproof strategy. Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, what I was gonna say is, uh, you just gotta find a way to focus on at least just a few games at a time, or you, you can get to the point where you're just kind of frustrated, like you're just never finishing anything, and just kind of. Uh, buried in a pile of games and, and maybe even a good way would be to actually resist buying some some games like oh uh, look a Fallout game just came out 
wait wait for the edition with all the expansions. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. You know, even some Atlas games, it used to be the case where you pretty much need to buy it the day it comes out, because otherwise you're probably going to have to pay double the price, but that's that's not the case anymore. Um, yeah. So unless, unless you like swanky collector's editions. But, I mean, even if you do that, there's no reason to open the game. Um, I've got the collector's edition of Tales of Zestiria, and I haven't opened the game yet, and... I'm cool with that, because I've got the special edition, and once I'm ready to enjoy it, it's there. But I am not, as of yet. So, it, it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard, and it's going to depend on, you know, how you can focus yourself and get through things. Uh, so, I, I think the best thing I could recommend would be to um, look for some shorter games, and m- try and include some of those in whatever you're playing right now. Um, like yeah. I've got I've got some first-person shooters I'm playing, and probably going to play some more Tomb Raider soon. Things like that. Variety helps a lot. Yeah. Keep some variety in there, and definitely some variety. Like I said, with some shorter games, and you'll get through things. And and another thing I would say, if you start playing a game and you don't like it, just stop. <laughs> Stop. And now we dip into my philosophy. <laughs> yes, sorry. Go I have ahead. never felt anything like a compulsion that if a game's not done, there's a problem here. <laughs> like, I play a game until I am done with it. Like, otherwise, like, that's, that's what I care about. Like, if I'm not having fun with it anymore, I don't feel an obligation to that game. This is this is my hobby. It's not my job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like if I if I find myself trying to finish something because well I gotta finish it. It's like no, I don't owe it that. <laughs> because I mean, like, there's there's just not enough time. <laughs> no, there really isn't. <laughs> like. If they wanted me to finish it, they would have made a better game. (laughs) (laughs) Are you thinking of anything specifically with that comment? (laughs) No, no, I'm just thinking, like, you know, just in general. If you want me to finish your game, you make a good game. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I don't feel obligated just by virtue of having to spend money on it. Because that's throwing good time after bad money. Yeah. I... You know, just, just let it set you free, man. Let it set you free. Don't 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 feel obligated to video games. Right. Video games aren't people. <laughs> uh, that's that's really the most I can offer for advice. It's just like Oh, and also De- Destiny is awful for backlogs. Let me just say that. Awful. Freaking really, anything awful. that revolves around wanting you to check in once every few minutes? Yeah. <laughs> bad. Bad juju. But, yeah, like... <laughs> any game that requires you to sign in regularly is not going to be... Uh, not going to be a great time. No, not going to be great for you to do this, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, anything else you can think on the subject? 
Mm, not really. It's pretty much cut and dry as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, digital games are kind of bad for this too. But then I think you kind of feel less bad about leaving games and not coming back from for a while. Because, hey, it's just some it's a bunch of bits... It's not a disc that's sitting around gathering dust and making you feel bad. Make sure that the game you put off buying doesn't have some sort of stupid nonsense that causes it to be pulled from digital stores. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm still really angry at Sega right now. <laughs> I want to play OutRun, and I want to play Afterburner Climax, and guess what? I can't. Oh. Well, because they license for the dumbest reason. They licensed the look of a Ferrari and a type of airplane. And those licenses <laughs> ran out. And now they can't keep those on digital storefronts, so they're gone. I'm sorry, and I'm sure that, the, that all two Ferrari fans and uh, and whatever kind of airplanes and Afterburner fans were that like bought it specifically because of those things are very happy that they they made that choice. But every other human being on the planet that just wants to play a Sega game is just really upset, and that person is me. And I'm sure there's at least two others of me, so we outnumber you nerds anyway. <laughs> uh, Sega. Why is Sega always causing us so much trouble? Because Sega doesn't do things right. Sega! Uh, oh man, did you see those people like petitioning for Dreamcast too? I did. That was like just the peak of and, and the like the statement. We're gonna we're gonna put together like an off the shelf computer and we're gonna have some interns pitch it to them. Yeah, good luck. We've gotten in contact with some interns. It's great. Good luck. Once that's a success, you can pitch them my Saturn too, right? Can, can we pitch? Can we pitch like some sort of like cheap knockoff Saturn that plays Saturn games and has a built-in RAM expansion? Yeah, that. Yeah, let's do that. I'd be all for that. I need that. Need that in Inject my life. Inject it into my blood. Yes. Like someone go out of their way to like manufacture a high Saturn again. <laughs> not. I'm not even sure how many people know what a high Saturn is. I don't even know what that is. What is this? It was. It was a Hitachi. Uh, it was a Hitachi badged and manufactured Sega Saturn that came with the FMV video card. Oh, I think I remember this. There were a couple of those. JVC also made one called the V Saturn. Hmm. Sega. Sega. All right. Well, I think I'd hate you more if you didn't keep making Yakuza games. Yeah, Once they... you're done with those, you're dead to me. I would hate them more if they didn't own Atlas. They don't own Atlas. Oh, yes. Chinko Company owns Atlas. Technicalities, they're all under the same parent company. You know what I mean. It's the same as saying, like, Bethesda own, owns id. No, their parent company owns id. And, like, that's a different thing entirely. Okay, fine. Fine, you win. You win this round. I don't have time for your facts. <laughs> I feel like, facts. like next time we should have like a, we should ask if anyone wants to hear long pontifications about how David Bowie affected video games because he affected a lot of them. 
I would like to hear that. <laughs> Every RPG villain ever is based on some form of David Bowie. Uh, wasn't he in uh, in or did music for that Dreamcast game? He was in Omicron the Nomad Soul. That's what I'm thinking. That, that... No, it's not Omicron the Nomad Soul, is it? Maybe? Let me check. I know he was in a Dreamcast game. Yeah, yeah, it was Omicron the Nomad. So. Yeah, that was a weird thing. Had some input on the storyline and game design, making two cameo appearances within the game. More's the pity he couldn't have been more directly involved with a good video game, but, I mean, when you're dealing with David Cage's company, you take what you can get. Yeah. I don't play Quantic Dream games. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, uh, but, no, like, like, his style had a lot of influence. Like, just the look of him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, untold amounts of cultural influence. For sure. And he will be missed. Uh, as you've already heard through this episode we are obviously paying tribute to him with some of our favorite tunes of his um, time may change me but I can't trace time <laughs> you know it's kind of interesting um, there would never claim to be like the biggest David Bowie fan but you know after he passed listening to a lot of music just realizing you know how many of his songs I remembered without even thinking about it yeah. My my dad was a huge fan, so definitely heard a lot of his music growing up. Well, he's the kind of guy who's, like, his output was so eclectic that no one can say they weren't a fan of something he had done. Yeah. Like, it would be hard, it, like, it was oftentimes hard to find someone that loved everything he'd done, but it was hard to, it was much harder to find someone who could say that they didn't like anything he'd done. For sure. It's like that was a man that just kept reinventing himself like quite successfully um, rest in peace yeah well hopefully someone asks us the question you obviously want someone to ask so we can <laughs> talk about that because I think that would be an interesting discussion uh, how many people got their got their face on a Pokemon design <laughs> did he uh, I'll explain it uh, like Zangoose, a Generation 3 Pokemon, looks a lot like a very specific incarnation of David Bowie. Ah, uh, okay. Go look, at, go look at Ziggy Stardust and then go look at Zangoose. <laughs> With the lightning bolt, uh, the red, blood red lightning bolt across the pale face. <laughs> but, yeah. <sighs> Rest in peace. Rest in peace, dude. You will be missed. And and oh, I just want to mention that in case no one... Because I didn't realize this. He actually just released an album before... He released an passing. album two days before he died. He yeah. was diagnosed 18 months before he died. And the album was essentially his farewell. So I highly, I've listened to some of the songs on there. I highly recommend people check it out. It's people were... Uh, the the beautiful irony is that 
people didn't know he was dying until after the first reviews came out and people were already saying it was amazing before they found out that he had died yeah all right you gotta you gotta appreciate that level of like orchestrating things so that people would have an untainted view before realizing what you've done for sure an artist to the very end uh, all right that's gonna wrap it up um if you want send us in your questions on the forums uh email me at wheels at rpgamer.com hit us up on twitter uh, i'm ask wheels dave is at fanboy master and yep. if you want to send us some of your david bowie memories even though that's not strictly rpg related david absolutely RPG. feel free for sure I would have totally played a Ziggy Stardust RPG. I feel like we need to engineer a world where that exists. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. Um, but yeah. A better world. A more perfect world. <laughs> but that's all, folks. We will see you next time. See you next time. Ziggy played guitar, jamming good 